Love is more than a rush of a feeling. <laughs> love is sweet labor. Fierce, bloody, imperfect, life-giving, a choice we make. And when we choose to, to take a fraction of that kind of love that we have for our closest people and, and extend it out into the world, love for others, love for opponents, love even for ourselves, that is when love becomes revolutionary. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman. I produce this wonderful podcast, and we're here today continuing the real life series on the Meta Hour, episode 218. Today's conversation is drawn from the Living an Authentic Life Summit, which took place early in 2023 and was part of the celebration of the launch of Sharon's new book, Real Life. Same name of our series, of course. And today's recording is from day four of that summit and features Sharon in conversation with Valerie Carr. Valerie has been on our podcast before. She's an incredible speaker, author, activist. So today's conversation is exploring the larger journey that we take in life that include both the highs and the lows, the moments of great loss and also the moments of great success and celebration. This conversation starts off with some of the background of Valerie's work, how she was inspired into justice work through the loss of her uncle in the wake of 9-11 and a lot of her work centers around the power of storytelling. In particular, how storytelling can connect us, how it can promote empathy, and really pointing to the necessity of community through storytelling. She and Sharon speak about grief and how that has inspired her project, the Revolutionary Love Project. They also speak at length about wonder and magic and the power of love, both to meet people in our lives, to break down barriers and foster greater understanding, but also how we relate to unseen parts in ourselves that we perhaps don't yet know. So this is a juicy conversation and Valerie's work is incredibly inspiring. So let's jump into the episode. Sharon Salzberg and Valerie Carr. Welcome back to the summit. I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm very pleased to welcome Valerie Carr for a conversation about what we take along on our journey and what we can leave behind. Valerie is a civil rights leader, lawyer, award winning filmmaker, educator, and author of the number one LA Times bestseller. See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love. A daughter of Punjabi Sikh farmers in California, she has led visionary campaigns to tell untold stories and change policy on issues ranging from hate crimes to digital freedom. In fall 2022, President Biden honored Valerie at the White House in the first ever Uniters ceremony, naming her as one of 16 leaders whose work is healing America. Her work has ignited a national movement to reclaim love as a force for justice. Today, she leads the Revolutionary Love Project to inspire and equip people across America to build the beloved community. Thank you so much for being here. It's, it's such a, a pleasure. And as we were chatting beforehand, you were, you were the last friend I made before. <laughs> Uh, COVID shut down, you know. That's right. I'll never forget our, our tea date here in my yeah, neighborhood. It was so great. Sharon, your work has been so nourishing and life-giving for so long that just to be in your presence now is a gift. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. So you were galvanized to action as you tell us the story in the wake of 9-11 when your beloved uncle was murdered in a racially motivated hate crime. And I'm wondering what combination of forces were working 
in you to take you onto the path of civil rights activism from that experience. That was 21 years ago now. So when I look back at my little self, I have so much compassion for her. <laughs> I don't think she even knew what forces were compelling her inside or outside. She was just a body being worked on. And I think that's the case for so many of us when we find ourselves in crisis beyond our comprehension. You know, I, I was a kid in college in the wake of the horror of those terrorist attacks. Racial violence exploded on city streets all across America. Muslim Americans, South Asian Americans, Sikh Americans at the forefront of that violence. And this was before social media, before we had any channels to tell our own stories. So it was just phone calls and emails from aunties and uncles in my community saying, someone's going to die, someone's going to die. People were being beaten, chased, stabbed, Gurdwara set on fire. And then finally, on September 15th, we got the phone call from Arizona that Balbir Singh Sodhi had been killed. He was a Sikh American father who was planting flowers in front of his gas station in Arizona when he was shot in the back by a man who called himself a patriot. I called Babir Singh Sodhi uncle, which is what you call any elder in your community. And I remember feeling so confused, like I didn't want to face my role as an American whose country was attacked. And I didn't want to face my place in a community who found itself under siege. And I, Sharon, I escaped to my bedroom. Like I hid in my parents' bedroom for days. I stayed in my pajamas. And at that point, there were um, just three, I think two or three books of Harry Potter that had been released. <laughs> and I read all of them. I just... I wanted not, I don't want not to face the world. I wanted to retreat. And it, it turns out I was escaping into this fantasy world where the children in the story wielded a kind of magic to face the dark arts and the dementors that the adults didn't know how to face, didn't have the courage to face. And so I didn't have a wand, but I had a beaten up old camera, a high eight camera. They don't even make those cameras anymore. And I, I had this idea. It's like, well, I, I, if I believed at that point that stories were the starting point for healing, if, if people just knew our story, then perhaps the violence would stop. And so I, I picked up that camera almost naively. I didn't know what I was getting into. I took a leave of absence from college and I began to cross the nation, going from home to home, from city to city, sometimes when the blood was still fresh on the ground and I was hearing the stories of my people. And I didn't know it then. I was trying to be like this professional journalist. <laughs> but what I was really doing was grieving with people whom the nation was refusing to grieve with. And sharing all those stories, I, I remember the despair that the stories were just so relentless. The violence didn't stop, just began to spread in me like a cancer. And I, I think it would have taken me. But I... I had to do one last interview. I, I flew around the country to interview the widow of Bulbir uncle. And there she was in Punjab, in all the farmlands and the villages. She was dressed in white, the color of mourning. And I looked at my list of questions and I just looked into her heartbroken face and I just crumbled the questions and threw them away. And I said, Auntie G, I, I sat with her. I, I was present to her. I just wept with her. I was grieving with her. And I said, what, what would you like to tell the people of America? And I was expecting the despair I was feeling. And you know what she said? She said, thank you. Tell them thank you. When I went to America for my husband's memorial, they came out in the thousands. Mm -hmm. Christian, Muslim, Jew, they didn't know me, but they chose to love me. Tell them thank you for loving me. That act of grieving together, that act of love, like you don't need to know people in order to grieve with them. You grieve with them in order to know them. And that community showed up and chose to see Balbir Singh Sodhi not as a terrorist or foreigner, but as a brother. And that act of grieving together, which I call an act of revolutionary love, it, it saved this widow's heart and in turn saved mine. <laughs> it saved my life. I, I continue to 
capture the stories, to tell the stories, and to believe in the power of these stories. Because that local community showed up because they had heard Will Be Your Uncle's story. The national news didn't share it, but that community told it. And so I thought, let this be my life's work. Let me submit myself to telling the stories the country needs to hear. And that shaped the last 21 years of my life. That's amazing. It's those moments, you know, where we just cannot stay on the sidelines of something and thinking, you know, distantly, it'd be good if someone did that, you know, right. someone else did that. Someone else, because there's every reason for you not to be the person who does that. I mean, at that point, I had a little critic in my head and my little critic was like, you're a kid in college, you have a high school diploma and that is it. You know, you, you're not fluent in Punjabi. You're, you're, you've always felt between the Sikh community and the mainstream American community, not sick enough, not American enough. Like, who are you? Who are you to take this role of storytelling, of story keeping for the community? And yet there was this wise woman in me who I've now come to know very well. But I think the earliest signs of her were in that moment of crisis when she said, oh, my love, little critic, you're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. Right. And the, and the wise woman says, oh, my love, you are brave enough. You are brave enough. Let me just take your hand and just just take that step toward the thing that you fear. And if you take it with courage and if you're, if you're pure of heart, then it will lead you to the rest of the path and it will be enough. Yeah, it's beautiful. And the, the feeling of, um, from this angle, it was like inevitable. From that <laughs> angle, it was ludicrous, you know? <laughs> like, what? What? Yes. And dangerous. Right. Dangerous. But, you know, I, I, one of my heroes is Brian Stevenson. And I remember when I was in law school, he always said, oh, go to the places of pain, go to the places of do the ordinary thing in a place of pain. And it becomes extraordinary. All I was doing was sitting and being present to these stories of pain and, and heartache. And yet that act was an extraordinary act. It it saved the people I was with. It saved me. It, it created community solidarity bonds at then could grow and expand. And I think that is the call that we're all hearing now, right? We're all being called in some way by the crises of our time. And so mm -hmm. what does it mean for us to soothe that little critic when it rears its head and to turn to the, the voice of deep wisdom inside of us who says, oh, my love, you you are enough. Just do the one thing mm -hmm. and it will lead to the rest. So you said that you spent the first 20 years of your career organizing around hate. And now you want to organize around love. <laughs> yes. Right. That's where the path has led me. Uh -huh. You know, for, for decades, I, you know, because I, I discovered the power of our stories, I said, well, I need to now open my heart to the stories of other communities that I needed to hear. So I spent a long time listening, learning, understanding the stories of the Black community in this country. And I began to understand that anti-Blackness anti in America is the root of all of the kinds of hate that my people were experiencing and that the only way to dismantle white supremacy is to center black lives. So now my my campaigns around hate were like, all right, black liberation is necessary for collective liberation, liberation the black and sick struggle is side by side. And then I kept listening and kept learning and I sitting at the feet of indigenous elders and it was very hard because I always told the story of the American dream that my grandfather had come in 1913 and made the impossible possible. But if I just move that timeline back a few decades, there is blood in the farmland that my grandfather farmed. That California is the home to the largest, most documented campaign of state-sanctioned genocide. And that I could no longer tell my story beginning then. I had to begin it in indigenous memory. Mm -hmm. And when I did that, I began to tell myself a new story of America that all of the pain that we experience now is not aberration. It's a continuation of racial violence that has long plagued the soil. And if we are to tell a new story, we must begin with indigenous memory, indigenous wisdom. So now I am okay. Center black lives, begin with indigenous memory, lead with indigenous wisdom, and like always make sure there's space for women of color who are sure to not leave anyone behind. We carry so many identities within us. We have a site that I think ought to be prized. And, and this is really important, make sure there is space for those who identify as white, 
not just to be allies or witnesses or reckon with their own privilege, but to say, no, you are redefining the meaning of whiteness. <laughs> you you are redefining whiteness so that it's no longer complic- uh, synonymous with don- domination or complicity, but but to be an accomplice. What if being white meant to co-conspire with us to remake a multiracial democracy? So these were my elements for how to build campaigns of solidarity. And the more the more I led with this kind of vision of solidarity, the more that I, I saw the power of love to keep those bonds. You know, shallow solidarity is rooted in the logic of exchange. I show up for you, so you show up for me. <laughs> but deep solidarity is rooted in love. I show up for you because I love you. And that kind of love lasts long after the, me- the media cameras leave. Like that kind of love is the kind of love that will sustain our movements for justice, not just for a few months or a few seasons, but for years, for decades. And that's what we need now as we're in this transition as a, a nation, as we're, we're in this transition as a species. So I, it was after I be, had become a mother and I began to really reassess my own definitions of love and began to learn from how my mother always loved. It's like, oh, love is more than a rush of a feeling. <laughs> love is sweet labor. Fierce, bloody, imperfect, life-giving, a choice we make. And when we choose to to take a fraction of that kind of love that we have for our closest people and, and extend it out into the world, love for others, love for opponents, love even for ourselves, that is when love becomes revolutionary. It has the power to transform the world around us. So now my life is devoted to revolutionary love. It's beautiful. I want to go into that in, in some more depth in a minute, but I'm so struck by that image of you going to visit a grieving widow and basically listening. Yeah. You know, being with, being present, not offering advice or trying to fix it or um, using a kind of doctrinal idea like, um, you know, this is meant to be or whatever. Uh, right. And also not inciting uh, even more agony, you know, through uh, your own, say, emotional need for uh, receiving something in Mm -hmm. terms of anger and, you know, and rage. It's like you Mm -hmm. really appeared and you were just like you were the space within which she could have her own process. And that's very striking as you're talking about building alliances and, and community. You know, I think it's because when I, I was so young, right, I, I didn't have the words, but thank God I didn't because I had to be silent. I had to be quiet. And all these years later, now I realize I, I had the opportunity to learn at a young age what grieving with consists of, you know, that there is no fixing grief. There is only bearing it. And only by bearing it together do we survive it. There are no right words, right? There are no perfect words. If you need words, you say, you are grieving, but you are not grieving alone. Because that kind of violence, it like, it tears open a a, a hole. It's like a black hole. It sucks in language and meaning in all sense. And whenever we show up and try to make sense of it, it rings hollow because no, there's no making sense of this kind of mass violence, mass suffering. And When people have just survived it, it's like you're sitting on the edge of that black hole and you're about to be sucked in. And the only way that you don't fall in is if someone is holding your hand. That's all it takes. Oh, my love, you are grieving, but you're not grieving alone. Stay. Stay in the light. Stay with me. Let's cry together. Let's process together. And that is how that energy starts to become uh, like a body that's moving through you through the tears, through the shaking, through the murmuring. And the person next to you is like the safe container for that, for that processing. And I I have understood that grief and transition are very much in parallel because in grieving, you're, you're becoming something new. You'll never be the person you were when you had that beloved that meant so much to you, that thing or that person. But in grieving and processing, you're allowing yourself to become something new without it, a new way of being in the world, a new way of orienting to the world, not necessarily better, but different and perhaps more enriched because you've gone through a process that is, 
the human condition that allows then you to have the wisdom to go and sit with somebody else who is grieving that deeply. Sharon, you know, now I, I was just in Merced a few months ago and I was with a family who um, had lost a, a baby, an eight-month-old Aruhi, along with her parents and her uncle who had been kidnapped at gunpoint and their bodies were found in the orchard and they don't know the motive quite yet, but this this happened, you know, to a community that has long survived this kind of violence and you know, what do you do when it's a baby that has died, right? There are no right words. I entered that space and, and instead of one widow in white, it was like the whole family was in white. <laughs> you know, There was so much grief. It was so palpable. And all I did, is I brought a little baby gutta for Aruhi to wear when she is cremated to say she's, she's not alone. She's still a daughter of the Guru and she is loved and she's beloved and she is returning to the oneness that always is. And that act of just saying that she is our daughter too, and you are our family too, and we are grieving with you, just the tears, the coming together, the surviving it, the surviving it, the surviving it, and the becoming new as we survive it. May we all be able to find that in ourselves now. You reminded me of this very famous parable in the Buddhist tradition where um, a woman uh, lost her infant child. They died and she uh, couldn't acknowledge that. And so she carried around the little baby's corpse and kept asking great seers and uh, pundits and people to please heal the baby, bring the baby back to life. So she came to the Buddha and the Buddha said, oh, I can do that. Um, and she was ecstatic. And then he said, there's just one thing. Uh, you have to bring me a mustard seed from a house in which no one has ever died. And so she went around still holding the baby and, um, you know, knocked on all these doors and asked for a mustard seed. And people said, oh, certainly give you a mustard seed. And then she said, there's just one condition. Uh, it needs to be from a household where no one has ever died. And they said, well, of course, that's, that's not here. You know, we're as vulnerable as anybody else. And she went from house to house. And, and then it, it came to her like, this is, this is a part of life. This is tragedy and it is you know this is something we share and i'm not alone and sometimes you know people hear that story and they think how cruel of the buddha you know like what what a miserable errand that was and uh you know but it was it was that precise thing like it is truly terrible and i'm not alone mm. and so she was able to let go of the body of the baby and you know pursue her own spiritual life and as these stories always end so happily you know she became fully enlightened and was <laughs> you know renowned everywhere and, and all of that you know and uh on the one hand it seems cruel i can see that but it is the most powerful healing agent we have to understand that we're not alone and and i think it's just really important so if i think of a journey like your journey from being motivated more from hatred to being motivated by love that is a very powerful question. Like, what do we take with us and what do we leave behind? And I think one thing we take with us is a new sense of community mm. that's, that's ever renewing. And we leave behind many things, you know, that um, maybe served us once and don't serve us anymore or we're less complete understandings mm. of life and uh, strength and aloneness and community and on all of that. So it's it's a very powerful question for me always. Like, what do we take with us and what do we leave behind? Mm, it's so beautiful. I, 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 I love that story. I think I think I probably first learned it from you. <laughs> and I, I hold it close to me and I I understand the resistance to accepting it because I've you know my children are small. They're four and eight. And I just want to keep the world like Buddha's garden. I want, you know, safe and magical and no sickness and no old age and no pain. And just now, especially for the eight-year-olds, like the, he's, he's looking at the front page of the newspaper. He's hearing about the war in Ukraine. He's understanding the toll of the pandemic. And, and when I, mommy goes to the vigil and comes back and she's depleted and she's, her, her tears are stained down her face, like, 
I'm beginning to have to muster the language to break it to him in a way that the world is filled with so much sorrow. And I think what, what gives me some solace is that I'm able to give him a little bit more than what my parents gave me because we are amassing this collective wisdom around suffering, around pain. Like I know this, this beautiful story now in a way that I didn't when I was little. And it's now my mother does too. Like, so when my children are feeling that grief, we ask him, we ask them like, okay, what, where is it in your body? What color is it? <laughs> what shape is it? And now my son's like, mommy, it's blue. It's a triangle. It's pulsating. It's right. <laughs> like, great. I'm glad you're getting good at this. <laughs> Even if you're jaded a little bit, because now you're understanding that you are not the grief. You are not the sadness. It is a force that's moving through you. And I think if you're going to become more evolved, enlightened human beings, that to learn how to metabolize grief on a scale that no generation has had to before us will be what is necessary for us to show up in this unprecedented time we live in. I'm really glad you're naming it as grief too, because um, I'm also remembering a time when I had a uh, a pen pal who was an active duty soldier in Iraq, and um, he enlisted uh, at a time of personal heartbreak for him. And uh, I think ideals, which quickly became shattered. And uh, he wrote to a magazine, Buddhist magazine, and he said, I was, I was kind of interested in meditation before I went into the service. Do you think you could uh, hook me up with somebody that can write to me and, and help me? So they sent it to me. They sent his letter to me thinking that I would find somebody. And I said, I'm keeping him, you know. So we we began corresponding, and it was an extraordinary experience. And um, he came back and uh, appeared here at the retreat center, uh, to my surprise. And he was really uh, in a pretty bad way. Um, and he, uh, we had a retreat going on, which was being led by a friend of mine who had begun several hospices and. Um, you know, we sort of did like a parallel track for, for this young man. Um, and at one point, Rodney, who was the person leading the retreat, said to me about him, don't you see he's grieving? Mm. And it was so important for me because it took it away from kind of like, that's trauma, that's post-traumatic stress, that's a disorder, you know, that's, and it was like, of course he's grieving. You know, so much had been shattered for him in, in that act. And, you know, we call it like a soul wound. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's something that goes in so deep when we feel betrayed by a system that we've invested our idealism in. And so yes. uh, to name his grief, I think, is very important as we experience what's happening in the planet, what's happening with people, what's happening with violence, and um, to be able to understand that still there's a, a valid place for knowing our own sense of resource. Because if we are simply depleted or we feel overcome, if we feel the story is only this terrible, terrible, terrible incident, then we're just, we're sunk, you know? There's got to be a bigger story that we connect to. I think the truly beautiful challenge is to imagine what those we see as opponents may be grieving. Like right now, there's so many species of grief, right? Like people through the pandemic and the racial reckonings we've all gone through, people are grieving their story of what they thought America was. They are uh, grieving uh, a sense of safety as they're enc encountering our mortality, our vulnerability. They're, they're grieving their own losses, everything. But there are also those who are grieving a story they told themselves about what was owed to them. That man who killed Babir Singh Sodhi uh, 15 years after his Babir uncle's murder. Rana Sodi, Bobir's brother, and I decided to give him a call in prison because 
we asked ourselves, look, who is the one person we have not yet tried to love? And in speaking to Frank Roque, it was very difficult at first, but in speaking to him and listening to his story, I began to see his wound. And I began to see that, that there are no such thing as monsters in this world. There are only human beings who are wounded, who act out of their insecurity or rage or greed or grief. And that doesn't make them any less dangerous, but it does release their power over us. <laughs> because if we can see their wound, then we can ask ourselves, well, what are the forces that are driving that behavior? And then we become smarter about changing the context. So in listening to, to Frank day after day and hearing his story and seeing the wound, I said, oh, so much of white nationalist rage in this country is a symptom of unresolved grief. They are grieving the illusion that this America ever belonged just to them in the first place. It's not, it might not be my role to tend to all of that grief, but it might be someone who's listening now. If you can think of a, a neighbor or a colleague or a relative or a student in your life who, oh, you would rather not deal with them, but you know, if you're not talking to them, who is? Isolation breeds radicalization, and we know that our country is just becoming more divided as we're not talking to each other, as we're falling into the algorithms. And so what does it mean for us to say, okay, who is, who is in my sphere of influence who I could sit with, who I could listen to, who I could help grieve with <laughs> in order to, again, transition to become something new? And it just might happen that when you're listening so deeply, deep listening is an act of surrender. You risk being changed by what you hear. And so if they then in turn start listening deeply to you, then they might be changed by what they hear. You might be able to show them a vision of a future America that leaves no one behind, not even them, that there is place for all of us in this multiracial democracy that America can still be, that we can still birth. So that's what it looks like for me to organize around love these days, Sharon. I go around the country and I invite people to reflect on their role in this labor of revolutionary love. So let's go more deeply into revolutionary love, because as you describe it, it's fierce, right? It doesn't mean liking somebody or approving of them or giving into their particular vision of life and what brings happiness and what's correct. And, uh, and you say it necessarily includes others, our opponents, and ourselves. Yes. So that's a, it's just like an essential distinction, what love means to you and to me and, uh, and what it doesn't mean. Mm. Well, it, what I discovered is that love begins with the act of wonder. I really discovered this in, in caring for my babies. It doesn't actually begin with empathy. Like when my baby's crying, if I just sit and really imagine what it is to be crying, I'm not actually helping her. I have to wonder what is making her cry and then figure out how to care for her. So this idea of, what, of wonder being the, the primary act of love, when you feel like you can't, you can't have empathy for someone, it's okay. That will come later. Begin with wonder. And, and the practice I'm inviting people into is this, like, Imagine that you can walk down the street and as you're looking at the faces, even under the masks, you look at the faces, say, sister, brother, sibling, beloved. And when you are doing that, you are retraining your eye to see all others as kin. You can say to anyone, you are a part of me I do not yet know. It sounds very simple, but... Who we see as one of us determines what we do, like whose pain we recognize, what grief we let into our heart, what policies we support, what leaders we elect. I mean, demagogues succeed in their agendas and dehumanizing entire group, groups of people when they shut down our capacity to wonder. So to begin with wonder, you are a part of me I do not yet know. So what does that mean? To, to love others is to see no stranger to wonder about others, to grieve with others. And then when you grieve with someone, you have information for what you might be able to do to care for them, to fight for them. So love for others is see no stranger. Love for opponents. How do you love your opponents? 
That practice I call tend the wound, but it begins with tending our own wounds. <laughs> I think too many of us in mindfulness, spiritual, religious spaces are taught to suppress our ang- anger in the name of love and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. But as you so beautifully teach, like our anger carries information and energy. You are a part of me. I do not yet know. What does it mean to process that energy, to move it and the shaking, the drumming, the singing, the dancing, the And when we move that energy, we can say, what information does it carry? And what does that say for what what I want to do with that energy in the world? I call that harnessed energy divine rage. The aim of divine rage is not vengeance. It is to reorder the world. Mm -hmm. And so some of us need to stay in protecting those spaces for rage. But some of us, if we are safe enough, emotionally, physically, can go to that next practice, which is to listen to our opponents, to wonder even about them, to tend their wound. And when we do so, we can gather information for how to reimagine a context, an outcome, a a future that leaves no one behind, not even them. So see no stranger is how we love others. Tend the wound is how we love ourselves and I'm sorry, how we love our opponents. And social justice reformers from Gandhi to King to Mandela, they taught us a lot about how to love others, how to love our opponents, not so much how to love ourselves. This is the feminist intervention. You know, this is the work of, of your beautiful friend and my hero, Bell Hooks. You know, she taught us that our movements for justice can't happen on our backs or over our dead bodies. We have to be loving our own flesh as we go. And so this practice I call breathe and push. <laughs> the wisdom mm-hmm. of my life. She doesn't say, okay, push all the way. She says, no, my love, breathe and then push and then breathe again. There's there's a kind of cadence, a kind of rhythm to sustain one's energy in any long labor. The labor of living a life, raising a family or building a movement. You have to be letting enough breath into your body. This is why I see your work as medicine. Like you are teaching us how to breathe, (laughs) how to breathe literally in our bodies, how to breathe with the earth, with the sea, with the stars, how to help others breathe. This is what you do. You are our midwife. And only when we've let enough breath into our body, can we be ready for that push that we are ready to make. Only then can we be brave enough to transition ourselves as we are transitioning the world. And when we let enough breath in, then we let create the conditions to let joy in. And this is where I've landed, Sharon. It's like love love for others, see no stranger. Love for opponents, tend the wound. Love for ourselves, breathe and push. And when we're breathing enough, we get we experience what in my tradition we call jardavikala, ever-rising joy, even in the labor, ever-rising spirits, even in the darkness, even on the darkest days. Can I come home from the vigil and turn on the music and dance with my children? When the world gives you no reason for joy, can you put your body in a place where you're moving, where you're reminding yourself that the smile on your child's face is delightful and beautiful, and so is the tree outside the window. When we drop into the present moment, when we let enough breath in, we can't force joy, but we create the conditions to let it find us. And then that's the sparkly energy called Jardavikala that I find is is the way that I'm able to fuel my life's work. Now I feel like, okay, I'm not, I'm going to last, not just for a few years. I'm going to last for decades because I've learned how to organize my life around love. Well, it's really beautiful. There are a couple of things I want to um, take up. I was very taken when you use the phrase, if you're safe enough yeah. in terms of listening, because one of the things I've seen in teaching loving kindness meditation is how we tend to conflate love as though it only with action, as though it only has one face, you know? And so people say, well, I don't know about that loving kindness thing, because then I'll have to let them move back in. Then I'll have to give them more money. Then I can only say yes. Then I can only allow, or I can only visit that person in jail. You know, I've heard a lot of stories. Um, And it doesn't mean that it's not a, a dictum about a certain specific action we must take. Uh, it's about a heart space and it's about inner freedom. And there's a lot of discernment that comes in. Is it safe to go there? What about the balance of, say, compassion for yourself with somebody else? What about a sense of realistic limits? You know, what about wisdom of all kinds? And and that's very important to understand that love doesn't make our lives smaller. 
like predetermined, you must smile, you know, you must say yes. It actually, it opens our lives. It gives us a lot of room to move. And we'll see where that action seems best, you know, best taken. I remember talking about this at our tea date. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yes, this is it. It's um, if you have a knee on your neck, it's not necessarily your role to look up at your opponent and try to wonder about them or listen to them or love them. No, my love, your, your role is to stay alive, to take the next breath. That's your revolutionary act. But if you are someone who is safe enough, brave enough to tend to those kinds of opponents, we need you now. We need you in the labor. And so the practice I invite people into is, okay, uh, take allow yourself to, to picture in your mind's eye the face of an opponent. And as you do so, notice what's happening in your body. Just picturing their face. If you are noticing a lot of activation, like maybe your throat feels like it's closing and your heart starts to beat a little fast, maybe your belly clenches, maybe your fists, if you're noticing a lot of activation, then that is information for you. Your body is text. Your body is telling you this might not be the moment in your life. It might not be your role to reach out and listen to that opponent. Your role is to tend to your own wound, to process that trauma. Perhaps your revolutionary act is to give someone else permission to tend to those. That's revolutionary enough because you are just preserving their humanity. And in doing so, you're preserving your own. So give someone else permission to reach out to them. But if you picture that face and you know, you notice a little bit of activation, like it's, it doesn't feel quite good. It's a little uncomfortable in your body, but there's enough spaciousness inside of you to wonder about them. Again, you don't have to like them, empathize with them, feel them, not right now, just to wonder, why? Why do they say that? Why do they do that? Why? And you really want to know why, really want to know why. Then that is information that you might be ready to engage in a process of listening, of exchange. And here's the thing, human beings mirror each other, right? If you come out with daggers out, they'll come out with daggers out. But if you come out, you're really wondering why. At first, they'll be confused and daggers out. But then they might start wondering about you too. They might want to hear your story too. And when that happens, the oh, it's like a portal has opened up. It's magic. <laughs> and we don't see that modeled in our culture at all, right? Not in our media landscape, not in our political landscape, but it's in the spaces where diverse communities come together in schools and workplaces and neighborhoods. This is why so much of my work these days are going to those potential containers for beloved community. Can you create a portal where you're sitting and having an exchange and that deep listening creates the previously unimaginable possibility of reconciliation? And I believe, Sharon, that if we can do that, you know, that's block by block work, heart to heart work. If we can do that in the spaces between us, then perhaps we can amass the collective wisdom to transition the nation at large. The work of forgiveness, the work of apology, the work of repair, that's only going to happen from the bottom up. That's what Dr. King called a revolution of values, the lasting revolution, the quiet revolution. That's the revolution that we are building when we talk about revolutionary love. You know, it's funny. I, I sometimes have talked about um, spending an afternoon uh, with this man, Miles Horton, who was the founder of the Highlander Folk School, where uh, many of the civil rights and early environmental uh, activists trained, basically you know, in, in different nonviolent techniques. And um, and uh, we talked about, you know, uh, meditation, which he wasn't uh, particularly interested in. Uh, but I said to him, what do you do? Because you must do something. You know, um, I mean, that life was far from easy and was threatened and and so on. And, and he said, I go look at the mountains. I just yeah. look at the mountains. And uh and then we talked about loving kindness meditation, which is so much kind of my my thing. And and he said, oh, yeah, Marty, Martin Luther King Jr. used to say to me, you've got to love everybody. 
And I'd say, no, you don't. I don't. You know, I only have to love the people who deserve to be loved. And Marty would laugh and say, no, you got to love everybody. And I have not very often told that story. I've written about it very occasionally. And often when I have told it, somebody raises their hand and says, um, well, look what happened to him. You know, he was all for love and look what happened to him. As though there were cause and effect there. Mm. As though if he'd been full of hatred and vitriol and, and vengeance, he would have been safe. You know, so we have very distorted ideas of love, actually, and how it weakens us instead of strengthens us. And, and that's also a very powerful reflection. It has never been safe to stand in love in any era, in any culture, in any generation. It has never been safe because if you take the kind of love that we have in our domestic circle out into the world and imagine that we could build a society that we, where we treat everyone as kin, that all of those institutions that are built and preserved and profit from a hierarchy of human values start to fall apart, don't they? You know, I, I, we're in a moment where every institution we have inherited from the old order needs to either be dismantled, reformed, or reimagined. And we need to do that work. We need to transition it. And not just the big systems, criminal justice reform, education. No, like your school, your church down the street, your yoga studio, your, like, your work, your industry. Like all of us are in a position where we can look at the institutions we are part of and know that we have a role to play that no one else can play. And yes, it's not safe because the love ethic is inherently disruptive but only through the disruption are we able to birth the new. Imagine a beloved community where every person who walks through the door is known, is seen, is dignified, is welcomed. We're at a place now where if we don't create a society, a nation, a species where we have the love ethic as the foundation of every arena of our shared life, as Bell Hooks imagined, we won't make it as a people. So this is the moment that we're in. The call to love that we're hearing is not safe. And yet the solution is not silence. It's more solidarity. And that's why I'm so excited that I see more people than ever having the courage to stand in love. And I just want to pick up for a moment on uh, the theme you mentioned before about remembering the joy. Yeah. Because that's often hard to do. And in terms of what we bring with us on this journey or what we attempt to bring with us, what we leave behind. Uh, something well worth leaving behind is some feeling that it's too selfish. Um, it's, you know, guilt inducing and there is certainly no lack of suffering. And so it's easy to feel like this is wrong. This is indulgent, but um, you know, depletion, exhaustion, overwhelm is not serving anybody. And so, is something about restoring and replenishing and lifting up and being able to breathe and having yeah. some space and, and some delight in things that uh, is hard to own, but it's so important, it seems. I, I really learned this the hard way. You know, after Bobir Uncle was killed and I, I began my life in justice work, I just, you know, I thought I was only as good or worthy as my ability to grind my bones into the ground. You know, I, I thought I had to make myself suffer in order to serve. You know, I, I was always comparing my pain to the pain of the people I was serving. And of course, then there's no reason to ever care for yourself. And it, it, it took a breakdown. <laughs> it took me almost losing my life to wake up to the fact that there are parts of me that were worthy of love. Like somehow Sharon, I was really good at like, even other sitting with other sitting with opponents and saying, you are a part of me. I do not yet know, but I couldn't do that with myself. I couldn't do that with my own emotions. I mean, this is why this book is so beautiful. The, the chapter on being with difficult feelings, I, you know, you talk about the, the courage that it takes to sit with one's fear, to sit with one's shame to sit with one's grief. And now I, 
I turn to myself anytime a difficult emotion comes and I say, you are a part of me I do not yet know. Can I wonder about you? (laughs) Can I wonder what you have to teach me and what information you have to give me? You don't have to like rule what I do next. I don't have to act out of the fear, out of the rage. But if I can create enough spaciousness to wonder about myself, to listen, then I can then take that information to the wise woman in me and says, okay, now with all this information, what do we what do we do next that takes one more step to the light? I think that is, is how I finally, after my breakdown, I moved my family to the rainforest for a year. This is a, a, a gift that very few women of color or activists are ever given. Like I, I had a room of my own <laughs> and that's where I began to write my book, See No Stranger. But really it was a way to save my own life because I could finally wonder about all those parts of myself and treat them with compassion and soothe them like my own beloved child. I could finally take a deep breath. Being in the rainforest is like being in the womb of the earth. You know, it's warm and wet and safe and generative. And I was able to breathe more deeply than I've ever breathed. And now, Sharon, I feel like I'm back in the country and I carry the rainforest inside of me. I I know how to breathe now and I will know how to last now because I've finally begun to learn how to love myself. It's really so beautiful. And if we take anything with us on our many journeys, um, let it be some inkling of that, you know, that, <laughs> that is worth pursuing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all your work and your, uh, your passion. And I just, I love that you're my the last friend I made <laughs> in uh, in real time in real in real physical presence. Um, Me, too. <laughs> Me too. Arundhati Roy had this gorgeous image of the pandemic as a portal, right? Like, who do we take with us? And thank God I met you and could take you with me through the, to the other side. And yeah, let us take what do we leave behind? And who? Not just what do we take with us? Who do we take with us? Yeah. So may yeah. we all take with us the people who are. Our, our midwives <laughs> who can remind us to breathe when we forget, who can inspire us to be our best selves. And thank you for being that for me. Well, thank you so much really for everything. And uh, I don't know if there's any reflection or practice you want to leave us with, or if um, the one you did earlier was, was that, you know, you know, I, I will leave you with one because, you know, I talked about the little critic in my head really loud, like loud squawking bird. And what has helped me is actually to envision and imagine the wise woman in me. And the you know, you have this gorgeous rain practice that Tara Brock and you both teach. And I'm, I'm like, oh, that's what the wise woman does. <laughs> if I, when I conjure her voice, this is how she speaks to me. She's asking what my body is carrying, what emotions and investigates them and then nurtures them. And so finding the wise woman in me is how I, I really... It's my most most vigilant spiritual practice. And so I want to offer a very simple practice to invite people to find the wise woman or the wise one inside of them. So I invite you to place your feet on the earth. And you can just let your body soften. You can close your eyes for a moment and take a deep breath in, almost as if you are taking the breath from the earth itself. Let it come. Good, let it go. Nothing to do but but be here right now. And I invite you to take a sense of curiosity as you give your body a brief scan from crown to toe. So starting with your head, just noticing sensation, what you are carrying now in this moment. Notice your head, space between your eyebrows your throat, your heart space, your belly. And as you continue down, just notice the impact, the physiological impact of listening to this conversation between Sharon and me, what, how that is showing up in your body. Notice spaciousness, notice tension, without trying to change it, just observe it. 
Good. And now I ask you, if there is a physical location in your body where your deepest wisdom resides, where would it be? Good. Choose one place. And if it's available to you, you can very gently place your hand there as if you are touching your own most beloved. Good. If this place in your body where your deepest wisdom resides has a color, what colors do you see? And if your deepest wisdom has a shape, animal, object, or landscape, what shape does that wisdom take? Good. You may be seeing many images in your in your mind. Just choose one that is calling to you in this moment. And you may just see a sliver, and that's enough. Just let it come, what comes to you. Now, once you have that shape, I invite you to take another deep breath from the earth itself. And when you take a deep breath this time, imagine that you're sending breath to this place in your body. Let it come. Let it go, let it come. And with every breath, imagine that this wisdom inside of you is becoming more vivid, more colorful. The lines are becoming more clear. It's becoming more solid. Let it come, let it go, let it come. And when that wisdom, when that shape is the most vibrant it it can be, I invite you just to relax and rest in it. This deep wisdom in you has been waiting for you to get quiet enough, to get still enough to listen to it. This deepest wisdom within you has information that you need to be brave with your life now and next. I invite you to spend the next minute just listening. It may come in words or feelings, but let yourself receive. knowing that you can always come back here. I invite you to take your cupped hands and you can whisper what you heard into your hands. And if it was a feeling, you can just give it a deep exhale, but deposit it, go ahead. Now you can almost show it like you're you're carrying some shimmering golden wisdom in your hands. Imagine that, and now I invite you to take those cupped hands and press that wisdom into your heart and imagine it just flowing down the rest of your body as if flowing down all the veins in your body into the earth where it is nourished and up again. Let it pulsate inside of you. Let wisdom guide you and keep you. May you be safe and sustained by this love. May you know that you have everything you need already within your heart to be brave with your life. Let it come and let it go. Well, thank you so much. Um, You're leaving us all with with a great gift as is your work. And um, thank you for, 
going to the rainforest, <laughs> re-emerging, and um, really for everything that you do. And I'm also leaving uh, with an emphasis on the word wonder, because I've been calling it curiosity, which doesn't quite capture. I think it's magic, you know, and now I'm yeah. going to call it wonder. So. <laughs> oh, I love that. Wonder is more embodied, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. in the faith, it's called Vismad. Vismad, this ecstatic, it's like wonder rippling through your body. Ooh. And the more, the more we feel it, the more we know it. So, uh-huh. yeah, let us, let us lead with our wonder. So great. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, thank you all who are listening. And to learn more about Valerie and her work, Visit Valerie Kortz, V-A-L-A-R-I-E-K-A-U-R.com. Thank you. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Sharon's work, her virtual offerings, classes, courses, really all things Sharon, you can visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. <laughs>